Welcome to this Market Commentator podcast. It is MoneyWeb's weekly podcast where I speak to leading investment professionals. The guest today is Clyde Rousseau. He is the head of quality at Investec. Clyde, welcome to the show. Uh, markets are pretty strong at the moment. Um, a few months ago, we did see a correction, um, but since then, we have regained most of the losses. Um, and one of the themes that is currently uh, influencing or driving the market uh, is the U.S. interest rates. Um, what do you think of the impact will be of a 25 basis point hike? Uh, yeah, thanks, Rick. Thanks for the opportunity of, of talking to to people here. Yeah, I think I think that markets are probably driven more so not necessarily by the by the rate cycle, but but in terms of you know lots of liquidity and 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 a continuous search for that liquidity to find some sort of return um, objective. Uh, I think you know where where the rate cycle does play a little bit of a role is possibly been the trajectory of the strength of the U.S. dollar against many emerging market currencies, of which the rand clearly has been on the wrong end of, of that particular trade and clearly therefore the, the outflows out of out of resources and, and resource denominated uh, economies. So so that's been I think been a key theme uh, around 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 markets. You know, with regards to the US and the twenty five basis point increase or not, I, I just think in many respects it's a little bit of an academic uh, you know argument and exercise and people are missing the bigger picture. The bigger picture is is that we are definitely dealing with a world which is not growing as strongly as what people would like it to be, not growing as strong as what the Federal Reserve would like it to be. And if you look at the world outside of the U.S., it's, it's still pretty precarious. So, so there's a lot of uncertainty as to whether or not rates can go up and when and by how much and over what period. And, uh, you, know, whilst, you know, these are normal things to expect you know, in a recovering economic cycle. This cycle is not looking like any normal cycle whatsoever. How long do you think the the negative state will continue? When do you foresee a, an upswing? Well, in our in our minds, you know, people should should not be looking for or expecting or betting on on that recovery. Uh, we you know we're seven years into into a very difficult um, macroeconomic environment and landscape, and if you look at what happened in Japan, you know, there were twenty years where we essentially there was a bit of stagnation. So for us, we think that the world is probably going to be characterized by, by that for, for, for quite some time. You know, I don't want to put a time frame on it, but I think that you know, we're still suffering some serious overhangs. And you don't, you don't come out of a, a financial crisis of the magnitude we had in 2008 and 2009 only just to recover very, very beautifully and gently uh, after that. I, I think that this is, this is a tough environment, and, and people underestimate the degree uh, to which things are going to improve. So for us, it doesn't mean you know, it's a spiritual risk environment and there are no opportunities to make money. I think that you just should just be mindful of the fact that, that all the normal rules don't apply and, and, find, and find a strategy and opportunities that, that can make you money in, in you know, not necessarily being reliant on, on that normal, normal cycle to return. This level of liquidity in the market does create a massive overhang, as you've said. Um, but we also are seeing that markets are close to all-time highs. Do you think the risk profile of markets uh, has changed over the, uh, the past few months? Well, look, I mean, it, it's fair to say that, you know, we, you know, when you're dealing with a world where, where, let's say, in Europe or in the U.S. or even the U.K., you know, rates are at or near zero and, and increasingly longer-dated safe government bond yields also, you know, up to five years are either zero or negative in yield. So, you know, if you think about it, if that's where you want to park your money as a safe alternative, it does make sense if you're expecting deflation. And, and it's fair to say that both in Europe 
and to a certain extent in the U.S., uh, the, the authorities are petrified uh, of what would happen if the deflationary forces gather hold. And, you know, it's only in South Africa and, and possibly some of the other emerging market economies where there is significant uh, inflation pressures, or at least in terms of positive prints on, on, on CPI numbers. But the reality is that the world is, is still struggling from a deflation, and that's, and that's the, the aftermath of, of the crisis. Uh, but more importantly, technological disruption continues to eat away at, at business models. And, and I think that's the one that's maybe a little bit less understood. You know, technology is disrupting across the board. You can think of Skype or Google or Amazon. You know, these, are, these are phenomenal companies that are, that are finding better ways, smarter ways of doing things, and, and it's rendering some, some business models obsolete. So to answer your question in simple terms, I think – you know, what it means for an investment strategy and what it means for, for us as investors is, again, you know, you have to find um, and invest in businesses that can create uh, some of their own growth trajectory. And in this type of world, it's either about mergers and acquisitions or it's about cost-cutting or it's about being generally better than your peers if you want to actually grow uh, your income statement and grow your cash flows and grow your profits over time. You know, just simply being around is, is, is not good enough. Let's look at the uh, flagship opportunity fund which you manage. Um, it's a big fund. It has $40 billion under management. But the first thing I saw when I looked at the fact sheet was that uh, your foreign asset component comprises 30% of the total value of the fund. I was under the impression uh, it is capped at 25%. Yeah, that's correct. And, uh, you know, typically what the, what the authorities allow for, you have 12 months in terms of a drift. So, um, you know, if you do exceed the 25%, you know, within 12 months, you, you are forced to bring it back to 25. So at the end of October, which is clear just past, you know, we back down to below 25% in foreign assets. So, so I wouldn't worry about that. Um, you know, that is still perfectly acceptable within the regulatory norms. It is a multi-asset class fund, and although equities represent the biggest asset class, uh, both locally and internationally, it is uh, evident that you don't like property. Um, the listed property as an asset class only represents around 1% of the local asset class allocation. Why don't you like property? Yeah, that, that's, that reflects um, you know, a holding we have in South Africa. We do have about 1.5% in, in offshore global REITs, um, not the traditional stocks that one would typically you know, invest in either in South Africa. So those would be and into properties or a couple of counties or growth point or, you know, or high prop or any of the stocks like that. You know, we, we found some interesting other opportunities that we can invest in, which are not necessarily dual listed. Um, and it's fair to say that, that you know, I, I think I think the problem with South African investors is in, in general terms, you don't have a lot of choice. I mean, the local listed property stocks, I think, are, are, are very expensive. Um, and And I don't think that the distribution growth is going to be maintained um, going forward. So we don't own much by way of exposure to the, the RAND-nominated South African uh, REITs, with the exception of Growth Point, which we think is fairly conservative in terms of its accounting and conservative in terms of its own distribution growth and evolution. And then if you look at the capital counties or, or if you look at um, into properties or NEPI, which is um, investing in Romania, you know, these companies are not exactly, uh, you know, they're not exactly inexpensively valued. Um, and, uh, you know, Kaplan County was a great growth story in terms of London, Earls Court and Covent Garden. But, you know, you are paying for that. So, so you know, you've got to be clear that the, the opportunities are going to match 
uh, the, the return expectations. The biggest asset class in a fund is equities. Um, but have you in the recent past uh, changed the asset allocation within the fund uh, maybe to turn uh, slightly more defensive? Yeah, look, we, you know, we, we pretty much try and allocate money to where we think there are very good inflation-beating returns to be made going forward. So our, our foreign allocation you know, has increasingly you know, moved towards offshore equities and has been you know, pretty much in the same, in the same range for, for the last 12 to 24 months. And in general terms, you know, even although the foreign you know, has done incredibly well, I mean, our, our foreign returns are up close to 40% in rands in the last 12 months. So those are, those are very big numbers uh, against you know, South African assets, which are only just sort of scraping double digits. So, so the foreign has been a fantastic driver of returns. We have been fairly conservatively positioned on, on South Africa for a while. And the reason for that is, is that, is that you know, the resource stocks are, are experiencing a significant commodity headwind. Um, and it's not clear exactly you know, where that, the bottom of that cycle is going to be. So we're a little bit more cautious on that front. And then if you look at the stocks that have typically you know, had all the price momentum, uh, been the favorites and the darlings of the market, are really the sort of the big rand edge industrial stocks like Naspers. Um, you know, those sorts of companies have done very well share price-wise. And the, the market has correctly rewarded the earnings growth that they've delivered. But, you know, they are trading at a very, very big premium to other global quality companies of similar type of you know, with similar type of opportunities. So, so we think in simple terms, South Africans understand the premium to pay for quality. We don't want to pay that premium for quality, so we're not necessarily investing in those companies. We can find offshore businesses which are at as, as good, if not better quality, um, offshore. So let's take an example. SAB Miller is, is clearly been the subject of a bid. Um, it's a fantastic business. It's not inexpensively priced. I think the tactical opportunity that AB InBev you know, sought to, 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 to buy out the business was very well-timed. Um, they're not going to pay a, a massive multiple. But in general terms, those sort of companies are probably valued in our portfolio, which we own offshore, um, at a 50% lower multiple. So we see considerable upside for those type of stable cash-generating businesses uh, that you can invest in and, and you don't have to pay the same degree of premium. And, and that's really the problem with the South African stock markets. They're very narrow. There are a few very good companies, but they are very, very richly priced. If you look at the equities in the fund, there are many companies that are really trading at high multiples. Uh, the top holding is British American Tobacco. It is close to an all-time high. Steinhoff uh, International uh, is trading very close to all-time highs. And you also have Mediclinic in there, who is busy with corporate action. Um, and SAB Miller, um, who has seen a massive spike in the share price due to the AB InBev offer. Um, what do you do in a, in a situation like this where some of the main holdings in the fund are trading at very high multiples and close to all-time highs? Do you sell it or do you hang on? Yeah, look, in, in, in simple terms, you know, you know, just because a share is trading at an all-time high doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's, it's overpriced. Um, I mean, clearly what we want to do is we want to make sure that we, we're investing in good businesses at reasonable prices. And I think all those examples that you've mentioned are, re are very good companies trading at, I wouldn't say cheap prices, they're trading at reasonable prices. So what we do is, you know, we would love to own more Mediclinic. We, you know, we have, a, we have a holding in Richmond, uh, which is, you know, if you look at our holding in, in SME Miller uh, or, or Mediclinic or, or even British American Tobacco, these are all fantastic companies. So what we do is, is because we recognize that these companies are, you know, at pretty much at fair, at fair multiples, uh, we hold less than what we would like ordinarily in a cycle if they were inexpensively valued. 
So in simple terms, if the market were to take a big correction, uh, you know, we'd want to allocate a lot more money to these businesses because we think over time they will continue to create uh, a huge amount of value through their own intrinsic growth opportunities. Some of them are somewhat more acquisitive, like many clinics, and some of them are just simply you know, fantastic cash compounders, like a British American Tobacco you know, there's been a great, great investment for, you know, not just for one, three, five, seven, ten, fifteen, twenty years. I mean it's been it's been it's been a fantastic asset. So, you know, just because it's it's doing well doesn't mean that you should that you should sell it. Yeah. You should only sell it if you can find something where, where you can match you know, similar opportunity or there's a fantastic turnaround or there's something, you know, within the within resource space. We've spent a lot of time in the resource space this year. Uh, and we've covered all the companies in a great degree of detail. And it, unfortunately, the downside scenario for some of these companies is not insignificant, even although they've underperformed by such a fantastic margin over the last 12 to 18 months. Mm. Have you bought any of those commodity uh, counters? Uh, we, we own Sassel in our, in our portfolios, which is not at an all-time high. Um, uh, it's one of, our, one of our largest holdings, and we c- continue to, to incrementally you know, add a bit more weighting there. Uh, we we have held on to our associated all holdings, uh, which is which has done quite well for us. So we have enough by way of Inor. Um And then if we look at the other companies, um, no, we've 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 looked at all of them. And um, yeah, let, let's just say that you know we 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 still we're still a little bit concerned about about some of the valuations, particularly for the companies that have debt. So if you look at the Anglos, for example, which you know conceptually looks like a very attractive opportunity because you know at 115 rand a share, it's 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 done very poorly uh, for for many years now. This is a share you trade more than 500 rand. So you think, well, something that's down that much must be you know attractively priced. Um, but unfortunately, if you look at some of the businesses, you know Anglo Platinum is still not necessarily you know helping the supply of platinum. So the deal they did with Sabania just essentially keeps. A further supply of platinum in the market and doesn't exactly help the price. Platinum ministry needs significant supply curtailments in order to to help the price to go up. If you look at copper, um, we're not seeing enough by way of supply cutbacks to to change the fortunes of the copper market to get the price to go up. Um, and if you look at diamonds, well, diamond prices are only starting to fall now. So, so you know, look at the commodity basket of, of Anglo's and and uh, you know when you have significant amount of debt and not generating cash. It does put your business under a bit of strain. So, so we think that there's going to be more like to be asset sales. And the problem with this environment is if you're trying to sell something, like look at Glencore. Glencore is trying to offload their commodities trading, uh, the agricultural commodity trading business. And uh, there's not necessarily a large number of buyers for type, these type of assets in this environment. And that's, that's challenging. I also see that you uh, own a fair chunk of new gold um, unit, uh, which is obviously physical gold. Uh, are you bullish on the gold price? Look, we, what we what we think is we think that um, probably one of the biggest macro events to, to look out for um, in the next while is, is is possibly a weakening of the U.S. dollar. And the reason why we say that is not because we have big macro forecasters or because we have any insight. It's just we think that that uh, you know the dollar has been so strong and it's done enough damage to to the trajectory of the U.S. economy going forward. Um, and that's part of the reason why the Fed can't hike interest rates. Uh, we are in a profits recession in the U.S., and uh, we are concerned about the economic growth trajectory into 2016. So, you know, if that's the case, then the dollar probably is not going to appreciate much more. In which case, something like gold could could do could do a bit better. If you look at the performance of the rand gold price, which essentially we've held, you know, it's up about 15 or 16 percent in the last 12 months. So it hasn't actually been the worst performing asset, even though the gold price has been weak. 
So in RAND terms, you are making money. And at the end of the day, the RAND gold price is a fantastic diversifier for portfolios. Um, and we think it definitely plays a role in a multi-asset portfolio. And uh, a lot of people say, well, it's an opportunity cost. Um, and we're not, we're not you know, doomsday in terms of it being the only asset that has real internal value, but we recognize that it does play an important role. And it's really starting to add in terms of performance to, to our funds. Thank you, Clyde. That was Clyde Rousseau, the head of quality at Investec.